most of the previous research has focused on um, each of these aspects individually. And that has been really important in the development of our research. So there's still a lot of work to do for recovery optimization to look at all those different nuances, but um, this is a new idea of looking at pulling all together, um, all the research together and all of that data to find out how we can really tailor our recovery nutrition. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm your host, Steph Gaskell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? Yeah, pretty good. Thanks, Steph. The lockdown is pretty much over here in Melbourne. We have more than five reasons to leave our house again for the first time in a couple of weeks, which is nice. Uh, and getting back into the, the lab tomorrow, getting some participants back in, which we had to, again, stop. Um, but the biggest problem at the moment is we've got a backlog of participants that we had booked uh, during the lockdown that we're now going to rebook. Uh, and it's been a bit of, I know, elbows out with you and I, and also <laughs> Zoya in the lab, um, trying to get space and, and get our participants in for the, the three kind of pretty big studies that are happening at the moment in terms of yours around sort of gastrointestinal function, Zoya's around um, pre and probiotic supplementation and mine around sodium replacements. So um, all of those studies have slightly different requirements. You know, you need 35 degrees in there, I need 30 degrees in there um, and different pieces of equipment and things. So it's been a bit of hudgy-bargy <laughs> between the three of us, I think, over the last week on email trying to um, clear up some space in the, the, the lab, but um, mm. but that's all right. Um, but, yeah, no, other than that, it's it's just been a long weekend here in Melbourne. Had some beautiful weather, actually. We had storms last week and flooding and mm. trees falling down all over the place and yep. and that kind of thing. And then it just kind of stopped and it's just been hardly a breath of wind for about three days in a row, a bit, a bit of sunshine and even managed to get the kids down to the beach uh, and enjoy that despite the fact that it's winter. So that was, mm. that was really good. Mm. Um, what about you? Yeah, um, I actually went, so we had that big hit of rain during the week and then I went to go for a run um, with Coops on the trails in like uh, Eaglemont area and um, it was just flooded. Like every trail I went to go on, it was just absolutely flooded. Um, it was crazy. So um, meant we had to do a bit of climbing to, to try and get to sections where it wasn't so chaotic. Um, but that was pretty cool. And uh, my my dad, I caught up with my dad actually. He's um, gone back into the emu ostrich industry, so he just dropped off a couple emu eggs. And I don't know if people know this, but the emu eggs are bloody big, like not as big as an ostrich egg. Ostrich egg is crazy. And I remember when I was younger, dad making us scrambled eggs from from emus or ostriches. Um, one emu egg is the equivalent of about um, 10 to 12 chicken eggs. Oof. Yeah, so they're about 600 grams and I guess a chicken egg's about wow. 40 or so. Um, so, yeah, have you ever had a had an emu egg no, like a scramble? never. Yeah, no. well, you're in tomorrow. I'll give you a... Um, I'll give you an emu egg, and it will <laughs> it will fill you up. <laughs> and they're they're a beautiful colouring too. They're like a, a dark um, green black colour. So I was going to say, yeah, I thought they were green. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. So that's been fun. Just listening to 
a bit more about the emu industry. It used to be quite a hard industry and uh, now it's gone really well. And the big thing that's doing so well is the, um, the emu oil. Um, apparently yes. the US just, um, they, yeah, they love that emu oil. So, um, yeah, it's just interesting to hear what, um, how, um, how that's kind of progressed through the years and, um, hmm. and what they do with all the, you know, processing of the emu, you've got, you know, the meat, you've got the oil, the, the hide and, um, trying not to waste, um, too much of that and, um, you can use, sounds horrible, but you can use the bones for like compost and um, some of the, f- the fat and the hide potentially for um, making like dog chews and those types of things. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Mm. So that was my, yeah, my last few days. Yes. Mm. Mm. There you go. <laughs> Something different. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. But here on the Long Munch, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask about, uh, might be during training or after their training session at the coffee table. Uh, and um, and the topic, I guess, that we're covering today, Alan, uh, what is it? Yeah, so it's episode 14A today, Steph, uh, and this is sort of, a, I guess, a follow-up to a couple of recent episodes that we've had looking at um, particularly the, the multi-stage events uh, and I guess one of the themes that's come up with the um, the discussions we've had with both, you know, James Brown from Minios Grenadiers and, and Leah Kirchman, who's a, a pro cyclist with Team DSM, uh, is the aspect around recovery, um, which I guess is one of the things that will differentiate a, a multi-stage event from a, a single day event uh, as much as anything else. So we thought today uh, we'd take a bit of a deeper dive into recovery and I guess some of the science behind that um, because we, we sort of talked about some of the logistical issues with that with with both James and, and Leah uh, and, and briefly sort of touched on the I guess the nutrients that we might be looking at or concerned about but we didn't really go into a huge amount of detail about you know what what is optimal nutrition-wise in terms of recovery. So uh, we've also talked in a previous episode with Ben Desbro uh, about mm-hmm. this in the context of the hydration aspect of recovery and, and whether, you know, having a beer after uh, you know, a hard training session or a race is going to be problematic or not, which, you know, we concluded from that that it's not if it's just one or two beers. Um, but we sort of touched on there that the R's of, of recovery. Uh, so we thought we'd take a, a deeper dive into that and, um, yeah, have a chat to uh, a former colleague of ours, um, Isabella Russo, who did her PhD in this area of um, nutrition and, and recovery optimization um, at, with us at, at Monash Uni over the last couple of years. So, yeah, be good to have a catch up with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking forward to, to that one. Uh, and I guess just in terms of if uh, some uh, shout outs that we've got, uh, we recently had uh, Kev, Kevin Ferguson on the, on the show. Um, we spoke to him about, you know, sort of how do you tackle, uh, the topic was how do you tackle your first ultra and um, Kev's a, a, a triathlete and an Ironman uh athlete and he was awarded uh an order of australia medal so shout out to to kev who's done a lot for the sport of triathlon 
Um, yeah, absolutely. And, so Kev yeah. was in episode 12D of the podcast, if anyone wants to go back and have a, a listen to him um, and some of the, the amazing stuff he's done, including um, taking his, his mate in a wheelchair around mm. the entire Ironman <laughs> at, um, at Bustleton. Pretty, yeah. pretty amazing story. Uh, and he's now officially our second OAM we've had on the podcast because, of course, Louise Burke back in episode 1A mm. uh, is also an OAM. So, yeah, big congratulations to Kev. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and did we have any other shout-outs that we – I don't think. Oh, we did have someone contact us via Facebook, um, and I'll have to look up. Uh, it was Larry Warren, sorry. Yes. Um, so big shout-out to you, Larry. Thanks for your questions. Uh, your question was around, I guess, the, the topic of eating disorders in um, – in runners, cyclists, and triathletes. So, yeah. uh, yes, this is something that we had on our radar to to do some episodes on uh, at some stage in the future. Uh, we've got a couple of guests that we we want to line up for this. Um, we're a little bit hamstrung in terms of guests at the moment, simply because the Olympics are coming up, and a few of the guests that we we want to get on the show are heavily involved with the uh, the planning and, and preparations for the Olympics. So they're understandably pretty flat out at the moment. Um, but I think once once we get through to sort of August time, um, people's schedules will clear up a fair bit and uh, some of those topics that we were, were looking to cover, uh, we'll, we'll get to um, and be able to uh, do a couple. We've got a couple of other um, episodes that uh, listeners have requested or you know topics that they've suggested that we're really keen to do. But again, um, having guest experts that are they're heavily involved with the Olympics is, um, means that we just have to wait a little bit to, to get those episodes done, but we will. So yeah, big thanks. Larry, for the suggestion. Yeah, yep. And if anyone's got any questions uh, they'd like us to uh, tackle on the Long Munch, if you can send us uh, those questions via social media platforms, so whether it be Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at the Long Munch, uh, and also you can listen to us at all your popular um, podcast platforms. So I think we also need to have a bit of a rant, don't we, Alan? Well, I think it's your turn, Steph. <laughs> I don't need to have a bit of a rant. I've been ranting plenty, trust me. But you look, well, you're smiling, you're laughing, mm. but deep down I know you're a little bit irritated when it comes to nutrition for recovery. And bearing in mind, you know, we talked obviously before that, you know, nutrition for recovery is relevant to multi-stage events, but it is also relevant to, you know, day-to-day training that people mm-hmm. have as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, I think, is the thing that really uh, gets you a little bit irritated, Steph. <laughs> it does. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess what we tend to see um, in some situations is, you know, um, and it can potentially be maybe it's particularly in the morning for some people. Uh, I guess it depends on their on their day. Um, but let's say they do the session in the morning, uh, and it and uh, it could be a quality session that they've just finished. Uh, but then they don't kind of think about their nutrition. You know, the the main focus they perhaps have is okay. Now I've got to rush off to work, uh, and so they kind of either miss. Um, that that nutrition immediately after um, or they really they skimp on it Um, and what we tend to see a lot um, in general uh, for people particularly in the morning meal 
Um, often protein can, can kind of be lacking for many people. Um, I guess particularly if you're a, a meat eater and you're an, you're an Aussie, you know, we tend to kind of eat a big hit of protein in the evening um, and it kind of is a bit unbalanced. Uh, so, you know, I think, again, it just comes down to thinking about what, what is my, my session and obviously what is the goal of that session. Maybe some people, when they do a session, as we've spoken about, they could be purposely um, not getting in as much in that recovery to try and optimise some training adaptations. Um, but, you know, obviously if they're not doing that um, and particularly if they have another sort of uh, hard session coming up, um, then that recovery nutrition immediately after is is quite important. Um, and um, and otherwise what I tend to see is uh, it just keeps it gets forgotten about until maybe lunch or you know a lot later and then personally myself as well, if I do that, I find then in my next run, um, it is a lot harder. you know I just don't have as much in the legs um, and even mentally. Um, so I think just try and appreciate the importance of that recovery nutrition. And if you are really busy, which we all are, uh, just try and do a bit of planning, uh, and think about, well, what is something that's, you know, logistically easy for me? Or do I need to have something planned at work? Um, so when I get to work, it's there, uh, and, and have those things planned out. So yep. that, yeah, yep. Uh, and I think we'll yeah. talk about that as we go through today. Like the, the amount of food or fluids required is, is not massive. Yes. Um, it doesn't need to be overly complicated. You don't don't need to sit down and have a three-course meal right. or anything like that to, to optimise your recovery. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's it's achievable in pretty much every circumstance. Sometimes it requires a little bit more planning than others, but, yeah, it's definitely achievable. And, and for those particularly, you know, all the Ironman guys out there that train morning and then afternoon as well, um, you've you've got quick turnarounds often, mm. like quite often um, mm. throughout the week. Uh, it's really important to to get that recovery right. Yeah, exactly. And particularly if they are like a ultra endurance athlete where they're doing a lot of that mileage, just getting the opportunity to get in that nutrition for to make sure they're getting in sufficient sufficient energy intake. They really need to maximise on all the opportunities they've got. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Awesome. So can you tell us a bit about the lovely Isabella Russo? I can, yes. So uh, Isabella is a sports dietitian. Uh, she's currently in the UK, actually. Um, we'll, we did this interview with her. She's over in London at the moment, but um, she's she's from Melbourne in Australia. Um, did her, her master's degree in, in nutrition and dietetics up in Sydney, actually, um, and then came back to, to Monash University and did her PhD in the area of, of recovery optimization, as we said before. So, um, you know, you and I were both involved sort of uh, in the lab at the same time that, that Bella was there doing her research. And, uh, yeah, it's fair to say that, you know, a lot of PhDs, you might go in and do two or three or four studies and each one is relatively small and contained. But um, uh, Bella did quite the opposite. Instead mm -hmm. of doing, you know, two or three small studies, she did one absolutely ginormous study mm -hmm. and then took bits and pieces from that for, for various parts of the PhD, um, which in some ways sounds like it would be easier, but I think in reality quite the opposite. Um, it was a massively unwieldy study 
with bits and pieces hanging off everywhere, um, really complex study design, uh, really long hours in the lab. Um, and, and Bella pretty much did most of that by herself. Um, obviously, she had some help from, from some of us at times for uh, you know, analysing, you know, processing blood samples and, and things like that. But, um, yeah, no, she did a, a huge uh, mountain of work uh, as part of that PhD, not only the, the lab study itself, but the reading around that. And as we'll hear in this interview, you know, uh, re uh, recovery is, is generally thought of in, in the individual parts and people research individual parts of recovery. She took on the entire thing and then added to it for concepts that really haven't been done in terms of recovery before and then had to, you know, do all the reading and be across all the studies in all of those areas at the same time to put her work into that context, which was a, a huge effort. So, uh, yeah, big congratulations to Bella. She's now completed her PhD. It's all been finalised, I think, everything except for wearing the gown and getting the certificate. So, um, and I'm not sure, unfortunately, she's over in the UK now, so mm. she probably won't be able to get back here to actually get the, get the ceremony and all those sorts of things, which is a, a real shame. But, um, mm. yeah, and it was great to, to have Bella on. Obviously, um, someone we've spent a lot of time with over the last few years, but mm. uh, not so much over the last few months. So great to catch mm. up with her uh, and have a, a chat about her area of expertise. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely were not jealous of her or her participants who were getting the muscle biopsies. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and um, I, I think the other thing that we wanted to also do a shout out for, or I just remembered, um, Alan, is our um, supervisor, Ricardo Costa. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So Ricardo obviously is Isabella's or was Isabella's PhD supervisor as well. Um, but yeah, he'd recently promoted to prof uh, associate professor. So mm. big congratulations to now associate professor Ricardo yeah, Costa. Costa. Um, yep. You know, done a huge amount of work over the last uh, almost 10 years here at Monash in Melbourne and prior to that at, at Coventry University in the UK. Mm. Um, so yeah, big congratulations to Ricardo for, and, you know, big kudos for, for all the great work he's done over the last... 10 or 15 years. And putting up with us. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So shall we get cracking into this episode? Yeah, let's, let's get into it and hear episode 14A with Isabella Russo. Awesome. Let's do it. Isabella Russo, welcome to the Long Munch over in London. It's very early in the morning over there. Are you caffeinated yet? I'm not caffeinated, but I am hydrated, so ah, we're all good. Excellent. Is that yes. a Barocca? Orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> Close. Close. <laughs> all right. So thank you for, for joining us, Bella. Um, obviously, you know, as we've heard in the introduction, uh, you did your PhD over at Monash uh, with Steph and I, and it was long hours, I think, the three of us spent pouring blood from tube to tube and spinning it in centrifuges and all sorts of fun and games. Yeah, we do. Thank you for your help. And then us quickly getting out of the way while you, while you wander through with uh, liquid nitrogen and pieces of people's leg muscle. Um, <laughs> good, good times were had. Um, so, as I said, you have just recently completed your PhD, um, but you're in the UK at the moment. So, first of all, what was it like moving over there mid-pandemic? Uh, it was pretty rough. Um, so we went from a four-month lockdown in Melbourne to a five-month lockdown in London. Um, so my partner and I have spent a great deal of time together 
um, timing wasn't ideal, but now everything's starting to open up and warm up. And so um, exciting things to come. It'll all be worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And the reason why we've got you on the podcast today is that your PhD was in the area of nutrition and post-exercise recovery. Was that an area that you were really familiar with going into the project or was it something that was a you know kind of a steep learning curve as, as you started your PhD? Yeah, so I was familiar with the basics of sports nutrition and sports recovery nutrition from my master's and I'd also studied um, exercise physiology in my undergraduate degree. Um, so I had a good foundation, but um, obviously when you're doing a PhD, you're doing a, a real deep dive into a topic. So I didn't have those really um, those extra skills, that extra knowledge that, that really refines a topic. Um, so there was a huge learning curve. Um, and I also did the sports nutrition course with um, SDA at the beginning of my PhD. So that was really fantastic. And that gave me a really good um, rounding of all my knowledge. Um, but as we'll talk about, there were two particular areas of my PhD, um, mainly gastrointestinal exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome and exercise immunology, which are really specialised areas. Um, so there was a lot of reading and learning to do um, in those two particular areas. Um, but I was very fortunate to have a good um, supervisor and supervisory team and students, other students like yourselves, to um, help direct my learning and um, really get to know those topics really well. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the PhD and I guess the, the, the first thing, um, sort of the overall aspect of it in terms of recovery, were there or what were the specific questions that you were trying to answer? Yeah, so recovery nutrition is a very well-researched area. There's been a great deal of interest in recovery for many, many years um, so the novel aspect that we were adding was looking at um, all the different aspects of recovery from energy replenishment, adaptation, hydration, and those additional areas that I talked about and integrating that as a whole into a concept. So looking at what do we need to put in to optimise all of these different outcomes. Um, so as I, yeah, as I said, each previous research has looked at each aspect individually and what do we need to do to get the most out of each of those aspects and what nutrition do we need to maximise energy replenishment or adaptation or hydration. Um, and there was little to no research in acute recovery nutrition strategies for um, immune recovery and exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome. So the aim was to find out more about those other aspects and then pull it all together and integrate it um, integrate all that data together as a whole. Yeah, yeah no, that makes sense. Um, and when you started out with your PhD, I mean, I guess like, like every student that does a PhD, you spend a lot of time reading and looking at what's been done in the past because obviously you're going to be building on that with, with your own research. And I remember, you know, when you were doing that for yours, uh, your project was particularly challenging because of this fact that you were looking at all of these aspects of recovery together. Whereas, as you said, traditionally people tend to kind of silo it and just look at the hydration or just look at the, the protein and the recovery side of things or, or something like that. Um, and from memory, that was a really hard slog because you're not just looking at all the literature on one of those. You had to look at all the literature on all of those and then pull it all together in this ginormous systematic review. That was uh, a bit of work from memory. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty heavy. I was thrown in the deep end with that one. Um, 
So yeah, as you mentioned, my literature review, it was, it was done in two parts. So the first one was looking at all those aspects of recovery. And then the second one was looking at um, dairy milk specifically as um, a recovery nutrition strategy. Um, so that first part of the review, I think the full text came up to about 130 papers to be reviewed. Um, so yeah, I had to read through 130 papers and find out which ones we wanted to include or not. And then the second part was a lot less, I think maybe 30 or 40. Um, and then we had to do data extraction. So that was less again, but it was still a, a very, very heavy job. But again, I had really good support with that. So I had a lot of people helping me manage all of that data um, and pull it all together. But it was, yeah, a lot of reading and a lot of learning. I, w- I was told that the first year of your PhD is just becoming familiar with the past 50 years of research. So it's a big job, um, but it's very exciting, terrifying and exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... When you started looking again at, I guess, at all the previous studies around the area um, of recovery, what did you find were the key focuses from a nutrition perspective? So we know that we've got the traditional kind of three R's of recovery, which are refueling, which we generally talk about carbohydrate replenishment, and then we talk about repair, so looking at protein, then rehydration, looking at fluids. But did you come across any other aspects that hadn't been explored as much? Yeah, so as I mentioned, exercise immunology and exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome um, had little to no research in the area. Um, So explaining what those are is that for exercise immunology, we know that immediately following exercise, there's an acute drop in immune function. Um, and we know that long-term we need good nutrition to support overall immune function. Um, but from my review, we turned up four papers that have looked at acute strategies to support um, that acute immune drop. Um, and all four of those were from our supervisor. Um, and then looking at gastrointestinal integrity, um, this is basically looking at um, the damage that goes on with the gut during exercise and how does that affect post-exercise nutrition. So we've got damage to the integrity and function of the gut. How much of that post-exercise nutrition is actually going through and how does that affect all of those other aspects of recovery? Um, So we wanted to expand on our knowledge of those two aspects of recovery and then tie it in to everything that we already know. And so obviously your supervisor, you know, Ricardo Costa, um, has, a, has a background in both exercise immunology and, and the gastrointestinal side of things, which we've talked about on a, a previous episode with Steph. Um, was it him that sort of said, let's take a look at these components? Or was it things that sort of came out of the studies you were reading thinking, oh, we need to look at these components or a bit of both? A bit of both. So we knew that they were both going to be features, but when that literature review turned up so little information on those aspects, um, it became really clear that that was something that we had to focus on and it did end up being sort of the, the main focus of most of my papers was looking at these two novel aspects and how it affects everything else that's going on. 
And so I guess um, in terms of those R's, so what are the other two additional R's that you've kind of now termed or coined in, in your papers? You talk about the five R's. What are they? Yeah, so the original three R's are repair, refuel and rehydrate. So repair is repairing um, damaged muscle and looking at muscle growth and adaptation. Refuel is refueling the muscles, so replenishing those muscle glycogen stores. Um, and rehydrate is obviously uh, replacing fluid losses. We added in regulate. So this is looking at regulation of the gastrointestinal tract and making sure that what we're consuming after exercise is not going to be malabsorbed. So it's actually going to be absorbed by, by the gut and you know, help us repair, refuel and rehydrate. Um, and the other one, other R, final R was restore. So restoring um, immune function after exercise and so making sure that drop in immune function is, is brought back up to baseline. And so what were the key findings from your own recovery studies that were potentially new or were contradicted um, in terms of what's been done before? Um, so looking at restore, so restoration of immune function, um, what we found aligned very well with Ricardo's previous studies. And that was that you need to get the carbohydrate in early to help um, prevent that drop in immune function. So we actually had a delay in our um, delivery of nutrition and that was because there was a lot going on in this study, as you can imagine. So it just wasn't, um, it wasn't possible to get Feasible. that nutrition in immediately after. And that delay we, we found with no matter what the nutrition intervention was, there was that drop in immune function. So the key take-home message from there was make sure that you're getting those carbohydrates in as soon as you finish exercise to prevent that drop in exercise function. Um, regulate was really interesting. So we gave a lot of different nutrition interventions um, and all of them, everything that had carbohydrate was malabsorbed to a clinical, potentially subclinical um, extent depending on the individual and it was highly variable depending on the individual so um, the biggest take-home from that um, was that your your tolerance to different recovery nutrition is, is really dependent on that individual and um, the function of their gut so the testing that you guys do at Monash um, to, to look at gastrointestinal function can be a really important factor to people who might be um, struggling with the recovering nutrition. And is part of that as well, <clears throat> I remember reading um, in your work is, I guess, post-exercise, uh, particularly after strenuous endurance exercise, if we do have some injury to the gut and it's not functioning as well, um, then trying to, when we try and get that nutrition in um, that post-exercise, um, if we are trying to get it in soon after to help with the immune function, but we have some of that malabsorption happening, um, is a strategy then perhaps to then do it like nice, small and frequent posts. So um, I guess you don't have so much coming into the gut at once. So perhaps it's not going to be as um, malabsorbed and it might be tolerated better. 
Yes, absolutely. Yes. So um, as you well know, yeah, that gastrointestinal load is a really important factor with how much is going through as well. So in um, our study, we gave our nutrition in three boluses over half an hour. Um, other studies mm. have spread that out over to one hour. Um, mm. So, yeah, like you said, just just pacing that intake. Um, you don't want to be dumping it all in one go immediately after exercise because that, again, will challenge the gut a lot more. Um, so spreading out that recovery nutrition over half an hour to an hour in, you know, small frequent doses. Mm-hmm. Yep. <clears throat> and, um, again, reading your, your work, you talk about recovery optimization. Is recovery optimization a, a new term? And if so, what does it mean that is perhaps different to how people have traditionally thought about recovery? Yeah, so that, that was a term that Ricardo and I came up with. Um, mm. And we actually drew it from engineering. So um, engineering optimization is obviously looking at these complex systems where you've got, you know, one input and however many outputs and you want to sort of optimize the energy efficiency of that system or you know whatever it may be whatever type of engineering so um, if we're looking at the human body we've got all these different outcomes that we're focusing on and what we do to optimize each of those outcomes might differ slightly so what can we do to help optimize all of those um, different aspects of recovery Uh, because as I said most of the previous research has focused on Um, each of these aspects individually and that has been really important in the development of our research but we're at a point now where we can pull it all together and find out what's the optimal strategy to optimize all of those individual goals for um for the athlete and whatever sport they might be competing in and whatever um point in the training they might be at so there's still a lot of work to do for recovery optimization to look at all these different nuances but um, this is a new idea of looking at pulling all together, um, all the research together and all of that data to find out how we can really tailor our recovery and nutrition. Yeah, so like integrating all of those aspects, so all of the R's together and, and seeing how they impact on the, on the outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And what do we know about the best way to practice good sports nutrition recovery? So... What things do we need to, I guess, consider? So, um, yeah, when when someone's, you know, just finished whatever exercise they've done and then they're thinking, oh, you know, now I've got to get on to my recovery nutrition, how do they know what things they should be looking at and how much they should be getting in? What do they need to think about? Um, so... The main things that we need to think about are um, the goals of that recovery and nutrition, so where, where they are at in their training. Um, and so we, we look at sort of divided into two parts where we have um, bringing everything back to baseline, so recovering, um, bringing everything back to what it was pre-exercise. So that might be um, replacing fluids to what we were when we were hydrated at the start of exercise or replenishing our muscle glycogen stores. Um, or restoring our immune function. But then we also look at the flip side of that is what, we, what do we want to upregulate? What do we want to push above those resting levels? Um, and that 
is most often muscle growth, um, repair and adaptation. We want to sort of push that above our resting levels. Um, but also potentially muscle glycogen stores. If you're loading, you want to sort of push that above the baseline levels. So um, looking at what you want to bring back to resting levels and, and what you want to push above those um, pre-exercise levels. And then so looking at what you need to replace and then what you what you want to push above those resting levels, as I said. Um, so the main things to focus on there is, is knowing what your fluid losses are and what your energy cost of that exercise session were to replace those. Um, and then the other most important thing is the timing, as we've spoken about for recovery uh, nutrition for immune function is you want to get it in there ASAP. And that seems to be the case as well for um, muscle glycogen losses and for um, muscle protein synthesis as well. So getting in there as quickly as possible is a, is a really key feature as well. Yep. Yeah. So it kind of, I guess, depends on <clears throat> as well, like when we talk about, you know, your recovery nutrition goals, um, like you said, it's about thinking, I guess, what's the purpose of that session? So with recovery nutrition, you know, you can have those two different goals where some people might um, purposely, um, you know, not recover as well um, post their session because they're trying for some extra training adaptations. Um, but then other times we're trying to, I guess, recover really well because we may have another quality session coming up or we may be, if we're in competition and we're in multi-stage events, then, you know, we're trying to um, optimise ourselves so we're ready for that next, that next session. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the two might overlap as well. So, you, you know, for your general training session, you might be trying to restore some aspects, but other aspects you're trying to boost up. So... Yeah, not mutually exclusive in that sense for every session, yeah. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> so I guess from, from all the reading you've done as, as well as, you know, your own studies, let's think about some sort of, I guess, practical recommendations uh, for the athletes listening out there now. So in terms of recovery, we've talked about obviously the carbohydrate, the protein and the, the fluid probably being the three things from a, a nutrient perspective. Um is there anything else beyond those, like thinking about those five R's, obviously, you know, refuel, repair, rehydrate, the three traditional R's is kind of your carbohydrate, fluid and protein. Um, but for the restore and the regulate, is there anything additional from a nutrition perspective or is it simply that it's an additional purpose we need to bear in mind that might have to do with the timing of those? Yeah, it's a good question. We actually found that for immune function, um, the optimal nutrition actually aligns very well with our carbohydrate needs for replenishment and muscle glycogen stores so that was a nice little overlap um, but when we're looking at regulation of the gut the quantity and quality of the nutrition is really important to consider um, so we compared different recovery beverages and we looked at malabsorption of those beverages over the four hours after they were consumed. Um, and one of the main things we found that was a really concentrated milk beverage induced some really horrible malabsorption and um, 
other issues at the other end um, for a lot of the athletes as well. <laughs> so having really concentrated beverages can put a lot of stress on the gut and, you know, lead to some unwanted side effects there. Um, but that was also a high lactose beverage, so that's something to consider as well. So even for lactose-tolerant individuals, that can cause some issues. Um, but again, on the flip side of that, we also had a low-carbohydrate beverage for the, the train-low-compete-high athletes, and that was tolerated really well. We didn't see any malabsorption whatsoever from the carbohydrates, obviously. So, um, yeah, the quantity and quality of the nutrients and how that's spaced out and when it's consumed are all important factors to consider there. Mm -hmm. And so with the, you just mentioned the sort of the lower carbohydrate beverage that you had as, as one part of the study, uh, and you mentioned that, you know, obviously it was well tolerated. So from that point of view, it it worked quite well, you know, symptom-wise. Um, but you mentioned earlier, like with the immune system, that, you know, carbohydrates seem to be quite important from that perspective. Did you see then with the low-carb recovery that that immune function wasn't restored as well? Uh, that's actually a question for future researchers. So unfortunately, because I said we had that delay, that one-hour delay, we didn't see any differences between the two recovery yeah. beverages. So we sort of missed that, unfortunately, but that's definitely something that we've, been, we've highlighted within that paper. Um, so it will be interesting to see what the effects on immune function are if you get a high-carbohydrate beverage and then a low-carbohydrate beverage and, com and compare the two, if you get those immediately in um, after exercise to see what the effects are on that because that is definitely, you know, as a really popular strategy for endurance athletes, looking at how that affects the immune, fun uh, immune function if you are sort of restricting carbohydrates regularly during training sessions, how, how does that affect your immune function? Yeah, yeah. Okay, mm. that's an interesting yeah. question. Um, okay, so let's let's think about those three nutrients now because it sounds like, you know, that will cover the, the three nutrients essentially cover the five R's but maybe just in, in slightly different ways. So we'll start off with the the carbohydrate side of things. Uh, and this is something, Steph, that you highlighted in, back in episode 7A, I think it was, uh, around, you know, why do I get gut problems during exercise? And it's probably a good place to start in, in terms of timeline because it's also thinking from a recovery, and I guess this is what was new about your work, um, Bella, is that, you know, what you eat and drink during exercise has an impact on how your ability to recover post-exercise. And that's probably something that traditionally we haven't thought of before we think about the during stuff as, you know, fueling the exercise and the performance. And then we worry about recovery once the exercise finishes. Um, but I think what you guys um, sort of, you know, bring together this sort of gastrointestinal aspect has really highlighted is that you need to look after your gut during the exercise, or as you said earlier, those nutrients that you consume after exercise aren't going to get in and, and do their job. Yeah, yeah. So uh, with the exercise protocol that we use, the athletes weren't having anything during, um, but it was only a two-hour session. So um, as you've spoken about previously, the longer the session, the more damage you're going to do to the gut and the more important it is to, to keep the gut patent and keep that nutrition going in. Um, but in the context of um, our study, um, yeah, with that, two-hour exercise where you're not getting anything in, the extent of malabsorption was, um, it varied a lot between athletes. Um, so as I mentioned before, understanding um, how your own gut responds to exercise and how you tolerate 
recovery nutrition is something that's really, really important to consider. Mm. And for people that can't go out and just you know, do testing to find that kind of stuff out, was it obvious in terms of you know, the people who were not absorbing that nutrition post-exercise were the ones getting all the bad gut symptoms or wasn't there much of a, a correlation? Um, so that's a really good question. Um, for some athletes, it was very obvious. So if we're seeing those really, really high levels of malabsorption, often that will overlap with symptoms. But that doesn't always happen. Um, so that does make things a little bit, little bit tricky. So in that sense, um, what's important is to focus on sort of the, those basics of getting the recovery nutrition in early, spacing it out, making sure that they're um, carbohydrates that are well tolerated. So if you don't respond well to lactose, then don't be having lactose immediately after exercise. Um, so making sure they're well tolerated and, and spaced out is, is really important. Cool. And I guess uh, from a practical implication perspective, uh, thinking about, Steph, the types of exercise where you're most likely to sort of cause that damage to the, um, the cells lining the gut, I guess if it's going to be hot, if it's going to be really long or really intense or a combination of those three in particular, they're the sessions where you don't really want to skimp on the carbs during the exercise because you're going to set yourself up for poor recovery. And they're probably the harder sessions where the recovery is going to be even more important anyway. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And it'd be, yeah, it'd be interesting to see like, um, you know, with that study, they weren't fueling, um, during, even though it was, it was like two hours, but, um, yeah, perhaps that then influenced some of that malabsorption that happened post-exercise. So I wonder then if you, you know, fuel well during and with that small frequent carbohydrate intake during, and then you did those um, post-exercise beverages, um, if then that would have changed some of those outcomes in, st- in terms of the malabsorption. Mm. But that's, like you said, pulling it all together. Yes. Yeah. More research for you yeah. mm. love with Ricardo. <laughs> <laughs> for you when you come back to us. <laughs> Fantastic. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> And just thinking about the sort of the adaptations post-exercise as well, because we had a chat with um, Dr. Sam Impey in episode 2A um, about, you know, sort of finishing a session deliberately quite glycogen depleted because it, you know, amplifies that sort of adaptation in the muscle after exercise, particularly if the goal is to increase your ability to use fat as a fuel um, during, you know, subsequent exercise sessions. And I guess the point there, and, and we talked a bit about it in that in that session, I think you made the point, Steph, in that episode that um, that that's fine to do in sort of your, your easier, sort of lower intensity training sessions, and particularly the, the shorter ones. Um, but obviously, if you go skimping on carb in the harder sessions, you're going to potentially cause some gut issues, which are either going to cause symptoms during the session and or possibly, you know, um, you know, you've done all this effort to try and get the better adaptation, but then if you can't get the, the nutrients in, you're probably not going to get that benefit anyway. So, um, and for the longer sessions, as we said, you know, often you'll finish them glycogen depleted, even if you're feeding carbs during anyway, just because of the nature mm. of the session and how hard you're, you're working. So I think the, the take home there is if you're going to skimp on carbs during a session, make sure it's an easy one um, for, for mm. several reasons that, you know, you're not getting those gut problems during, but, you know, as we talked about here, that it doesn't compromise your recovery afterwards potentially. Mm. All right, so in terms of actual amounts of carbohydrate, 
where are we at at the moment in terms of recommendations? So someone's doing you know, a really hard training session and they've got you know, another one, maybe you know, an Ironman athlete who's doing a hard morning session and they've got another one in the afternoon that they need to be well fueled for, or you know, you're doing a stage race and you, you've finished uh, you know, your run or mountain bike or whatever it is, you know, two o'clock this afternoon, you've got to go again at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. How much carbohydrate should people be trying to get in? Yeah, so from our review, we pulled together a lot of um, data from previous research and it aligned exactly with all the, all the current guidelines, which is um, around about 1 to 1.2 grams per kilo of body mass, or if you're having protein, 0.8 grams of carbs with 0.4 grams of protein per kilo of body mass. Um, unfortunately, we didn't really see that in um, our study, and we can go into that a little bit later, why we didn't see the glycogen replenishment in our study. Um, but, yeah, that 1 to 1.2 grams of carbs or 0.8 grams of carbs with 0.4 grams of protein per kilo of body mass um, is ideally where we want to be. So, and, and when you say 1.2 grams per kilo, is that as a one-off dose or are you talking about per hour for a period of time? Um, yeah, so we're talking per hour for that initial window. And then just normal meals. Um, so yeah, for, for that uh, for our window immediately after exercise, and then normal meals thereafter. Um, okay. So one point two grams per kilo per hour for four hours. Yes, yes. Sorry. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Yes, one point two <laughs> grams per kilo per hour for four hours. Um, yeah. That's for the athlete who has another intense session um, later that day. But with um, normal meals and snacks with enough energy to replenish whatever you depleted during the session, within 24 hours, um, muscle glycogen levels will return to resting. So um, that really sort of prescriptive immediate carbohydrate intake um, isn't as urgent for um, athletes who have that extended recovery window. Yeah. And from the immune stuff you looked at, is there a minimum amount? I'm just thinking like if tomorrow's a rest day, for example, so the carbs aren't really that important to get in in a big quantity for tomorrow but you're still worried about that immune function stuff is there a minimum amount which is probably i'm assuming less than that that you might need um, to protect the immune function it's actually the same amount so we gave again the, the 1.2 grams per kilo per hour um, immediately after but again it's dependent on that session so that that drop in immune function really only happens with a high intensity exercise for 60 minutes or more also that moderate intensity exercise for two hours or more um, and then again with the heat stress as well so um, the, the immune function is really only stressed and we're going to see that drop in immune function with sort of yeah one hour of high intensity exercise or sort of 90 minutes or more of moderate intensity exercise so that's where we need to focus on getting the carbs in for immune function yeah, okay. So I guess even if the session, like even if you don't have another session coming up shortly afterwards, but it's been a really big session, you might want to think about having those carbs anyway for, for other reasons. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, particularly if you are in an overall sort of heavy training block, um, yep. even though the, the next session might be 24 hours away, it's, you know, looking at the big picture of things. But that would, would that be... Like, um, because you said sort of the same amount, so 1.2 grams per kilo body mass or so. Um, w would that 
also need to be per hour over the next four hours or would it just be that kind of one-off immediately after? No, good question. That, that's the one-off. So it, it yeah. is just getting that one dose in okay, immediately cool. after. Yeah, it's good to know. Yeah, cool. So that's the carbohydrate side of things. I think that's um, pretty clear for people in terms of what scenarios and, and when you would do that. Let's talk about protein now. What, what are the recommendations from a recovery point of view in terms of protein at the moment? So protein requirements for endurance athletes is a relatively new area of research. We actually only turned over five studies that looked at this and all of them were exclusively in male athletes and most of them were looking at um, concurrent exercise. So not just running, but running and jumping or running and weights and, and that sort of thing. So we don't have a really clear picture and most of what we draw on is from um, resistance exercise training models. But um, that looks at getting 0 0.4 to yeah, 0 0.5 grams of protein and that's sort of just in that one bolus immediately after. And then, yeah, resuming normal um, meals and snacks thereafter. So, yeah, yeah. looking at that individualised tailored amount, um, so, yeah, the 0 0.5 relative to body mass so looking at the 0 0.4 grams per kilo of body mass is a little bit arbitrary so what most studies have found it's actually a 20 to 25 bolus a gram bolus of protein immediately after exercise is what's going to stimulate muscle protein synthesis to the greatest extent um, but again this isn't looking at endurance athletes this is drawing from resistance models yeah yeah, okay. And I think Steph and I have got on our radar to do a session specifically around protein and, and protein supplementation and endurance athletes um, down the track. So we'll probably cover that in a bit more detail when the time comes. But I guess in terms of, you know, the translation into food, it's uh, often I think people think they have to have these massive servings of protein, you know, after exercise. But when you look at what 20, 25 grams of protein is, it's actually not that big in terms of actual food. No, no, it's quite small. I think we're looking about 80 grams of red meat or something like that, which is really yeah. not a lot. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. And then the fluid side of things, what, what are the uh, sort of current recommendations around sort of fluid replacement post-exercise? Uh, yeah. So most people will um, monitor their fluid losses in terms of body mass change, so weighing yourself before and after and then whatever that loss is, we'll attribute that to fluid losses. Um, so current guidelines recommend replacing about 150% of those fluid losses, um, and that's mainly that extra little bit is to count for ongoing sweat and urine losses after exercise. Um, so if you're losing a kilo of body mass in that exercise session, having 1.5 litres of fluid um, to replace those sweat losses um, but then the type of fluid is also very important so we were looking at different um, beverages and one interesting finding was that um, when we compared a sports drink so Gatorade or Powerade sort of sugary drink um, to a dairy milk beverage the dairy milk beverage was actually a lot more effective at retaining fluid so the um, sports drink 
went into circulation really quickly, so it passed through the gut really quickly and went into circulation, um, but that caused um, a big drop in plasma osmolality and it was all peed out within the four hours, whereas the dairy milk beverage passed through the gut a lot more slowly and went into circulation a lot more slowly, and so the body retained that fluid a lot better over that, that four-hour period. So if you do have a training session um, or an, a competitive event within that you know, four- to six-hour window, um, having a, a drink with a little bit more nutrition to it, so uh, a greater carbohydrate protein composition, or making sure that you're having food with that fluid as well will help to retain that fluid a lot better than just having a sports yep. drink or water alone. Yep, so the, the food essentially, and we were talking to Ben Desro about this, uh, I can't remember what episode number, we were talking about beer post-exercise, but it came <laughs> up because it's an area of research that he's done, is that the food, essentially all those extra nutrients and bits and pieces within the food, I guess, will act on the water or the sports drink in the same way that the other bits in the milk are acting on the fluid in the milk. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yep. So it's not, it's not the milk itself, it, it's just the nutrition density of that milk beverage. Yeah, yep, cool. Um, all right, that, that all sounds pretty sensible. And so that protein, as you said, is just that, that one-off hit and then sort of resume your normal intake. And, and as I said, we'll, we'll talk in a future episode, I think, about sort of those general recommendations around protein and training for runners, cyclists and triathletes. Um, and then obviously the, the fluid as well. Um, so that 150%, is there any recommendation in terms of um, time frame to get that in? Um, again, yeah, that's the, that acute recovery period. So looking at that that four hour window. Um, yeah. And if you if you don't have excessive sweat losses, and you guys have talked about this a lot, that that program drinking immediately after is not not a, a great priority. Just drinking, um, you know, drinking water and eating normal meals after is is sufficient. But if you have high sweat losses, and you do have another event within the four to six hour window, you do want to be making sure that you're getting that 150% and that you do have some nutrition with those fluids as well. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Um, are there any other circumstances under which some of those recommendations might differ um, beyond, you know, sort of the ones that we've talked about already? Um, yeah, so one interesting finding that I did allude to before was that um, when you have mixed training so not just your steady state endurance but if you do have concurrent training or um, as we see with a lot of team sports a bit of running and jumping and dodging and a bit more muscle damage going on um, which is similar to the protocol that we used in our studies where we had running at different intensities and then we also had some plyometric jumps you're inducing a lot more muscle damage and what we found was that the 1.2 grams per kilo of body mass um, of carbohydrates that we gave in that first hour didn't do anything for the muscle glycogen stores. We didn't see any change in um, muscle glycogen concentration. And we've attributed that to um, the muscle damage that was going on. So if you out, my supervisor Ricardo likes to think about the muscle cell as a house. So if you've got muscle damage going on, you knock down the walls of that house, you, you can't hold the muscle glycogen in there. Um, so if you do have that damage, you're not going to be replenishing the muscle glycogen stores even if you do have sufficient carbohydrate in there. So again, that's a question for future researchers to look at if we do have that 
um, sort of concurrent or mixed exercise models, how do we optimise replenishment of muscle glycogen stores if, if that damage is occurring? So when and how do we need to give carbohydrate to those athletes? Or can you even, I suppose? Can you, yeah. yeah mm. is, is it possible? At, at least in time for the next session. Yeah, because as you've alluded to there, I think it might be, you know, one strategy might be thinking about delaying that sort of aggressive carbohydrate until there's a bit of repair. But, you know, if you've got a session again this afternoon, you may not get sufficient repair even by then. Um, Steph, just, just thinking from your, your perspective, uh, both as an athlete and, and someone who works with a lot of athletes, um, do you think that there's a scenario where there's significant muscle damage? Probably trail running would be the one that comes to mind for me where that may well be the case. Yeah, definitely. Like um, running downhill quite quickly, um, you, a lot of eccentric loading and, and damage in that. So, um, yeah, um, for sure there could be a lot of damage. And, um, yeah, and then if it's a multi-stage event, where you are trying to really optimise that recovery to then get into the next stage next day. Um, yeah, that definitely has, um, uh, yeah, perspective. Um, the other yeah. thing I was thinking as well um, when we're talking about kind of that rehydration strategy and, you know, like looking at rehydration post-exercise um, and looking at about 150% of whatever that loss is, that's kind of going to be um, different as well for if you're looking at ultra endurance stuff or that longer exercise because obviously when that body mass loss that we have is not just um, simply obviously from um, fluid compartments. Um, so, so yeah, so that's kind of something that's a bit difficult to study obviously in, in the lab. Um, but, you know, you can often see ultra endurance runners that could lose you know four six eight kilos after a really long run um so i guess we're not really saying to them that then you have to replace 150 percent of of that loss because some of that's going to be just simply from that fuel utilization um mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's something I don't think we really talked about in the episode with Lewis James mm. around fluid losses, particularly for the sort of ultra-endurance stuff. So when you start to get at sort of six or eight hours of exercise or more, you're right, Steph, some of that weight loss that occurs is, is no longer just fluid losses. Mm. It's going to be, um, you know, even b bit of body fat because you mm. just churn through so many calories during that exercise bout. Uh, obviously, all your, your glycogen that you've used up as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there will be a bit more to it than, than just fluid loss. Mm. But um, I, I guess that will only be relevant really to you know, a, a, an ultra-distance mm. event. Yeah. Um, and in which case, you know, oftentimes that you're not you're not backing that up again with a hard training session the next day if you just finish an Ironman. So mm. maybe probably something you don't need to worry about too much. Mm. But I guess there are some scenarios you know like ultra and things and... like that where that might be relevant yep. or some of the multi-stage ultra marathons where you might do like the, the long sort of 80k stages or something like that mm. um, where it may be relevant mm. yeah yeah cool all right so just um i guess that's probably given us a, a nice summary of the kind of the main nutrient requirements and and why bella is there anything else from your phd that you found that was sort of new or different or things that we haven't covered that you want to highlight I think we've covered most of the main um, main findings from my study. So, the, the, yeah, the biggest takeaways was like um, making sure that 
recovery nutrition is well tolerated, well paced out and not too concentrated because that's going to have some pretty awful side effects. Um, and then the other really interesting finding was that, yeah, the, the muscle glycogen um, restoration after that mixed intensity exercise. Um, so, yeah, those are two yeah, big questions for future researchers. And I, yeah, and I think you also highlighted as well is that it, there's such individual variation too, right? Like you saw some people really don't respond so well with absorbing the carb, but then other people, okay. So just again highlighting that um, there's that individual response. Absolutely, yeah. All right, well, I might hand over to you, Steph, for the bonus round. I forgot about the bonus round. Oh, what can I add in? Um, all right, to find a little bit more about you, Bella, other than um, all the amazing sports nutrition work you've, you've done, if you could do anything besides what you're doing now, what would it be? <laughs> Travelling. <laughs> definitely not something we can do right now i was going to say you've, you've sort of started traveling and then got stuck yeah i got one spot one one plane ride over and then, yeah got stuck <laughs> and that's it so yeah. yeah i would love to take some time to travel but i think that's either not going to be a possibility or going to be far in the future so yeah yeah okay have to wait and see yeah wait and see so what's one of the things on your bucket list i guess that you haven't yet done that you're you've kind of really want to do so I guess when you can travel is there anything particular on your bucket list um yes I want to travel to um Scandinavian countries and, and do some of the beautiful hikes and walks around there I think there's just so much to see and explore so that's that's where I'll be heading first that's where you'll be going all right <laughs> and is there a sport that you've seen and thought I'd love to try that one day? So something you haven't done and you've kind of thought that would be pretty cool. Um, I think one of the fun funniest races I'd like to do is the steepest hill in New Zealand. Ah. <laughs> Where everyone just sort of scrambles up the hill. I think that would be a fun race to participate in and also extremely challenging. Yeah. Might be a few swear words going too. <laughs> if you're involved. <laughs> Do you live... Speaking yeah. of that, actually, sorry, Steph, I'm going to butt in. Speaking of that, I just thought of something to add to the bonus round. So, Bella, you were a participant in one of Steph's studies. Um, mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about this study before. It was a, a study Which looking one? at <laughs> the effects of day running in daytime versus nighttime. Oh, dear. So you know where this is going already. You're both laughing. Um, on gastrointestinal symptoms and, and function. Uh, and you were one of the participants whose data didn't make it to the final manuscript. Can you tell us what happened? Um, I was very unwell. Um, I got, I think, not even two hours in, maybe in an hour and a half into the run. Um, and I just had to call it because I was just feeling pretty crook. Um, and I've actually found now that I can't run long distances in the evening. If I want to go more than a 12K run in the evening, I start to feel unwell. And, yeah, I think it's just there's more in my gut at that time of day. And I just, yeah, my gut can't hack it. So, so you're welcome to for that finding. morning. <laughs> <laughs> what was that i said you're welcome for that finding <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, thank you for your scientific insights on that one, Steph. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> do you live by any piece of advice or, um, or motto? I do, actually. It's um, a university graduation speech by Tim Minchin, and he gave a few life lessons, and one of them was be micro-ambitious. And so it means do the task in front of you as well as you can to the best of your ability, but keep an eye on the periphery for other opportunities that might be coming along. So don't don't keep your head down too hard, but do what you can to the best of your ability. Good one. It's, a, it's a good way to approach whatever's in front of you. Mm, I like it. And what's one piece of advice you would give to athletes in relation to practising good sports nutrition? Someone else's story is not science. Mm. Yeah, you're good at these. Which I think happens all too often is that, yeah, if we take whatever happened to someone else's gospel and it's just not the case, as, as we've seen with my own studies and, you know, mm. with myself, that, um, mm. you know, whatever happens with someone else is not necessarily going to translate to whatever works for you. So, you know, not knowing, looking at the science and, and looking at that big picture, but also knowing what works for your own body is really important. I think what I'd add to that is um, one of your supervisors was Professor Louise Burke, who we had in our very first ever episode of the podcast, and she uses the term scienciness <laughs> or something that sounds sciencey. <laughs> and I think that, that that kind of relates nicely to that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. For sure. Awesome. All right. Well, on behalf of both of us and, and obviously all the listeners, thanks so much for your time, Bella. I know it's very early in the morning over there in London. Um, so thanks for getting up early and I think you can be micro ambitious and hopefully Chris has got a coffee ready for you to go Hope so. and, uh, <laughs> enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thank thanks. you for having me. It was great to chat to you guys. Awesome. Thank you, Isabella Russo, a wealth of information. And as we've said, we are absolutely not jealous at all that we didn't do that particular PhD. <laughs> it was a massive job and um, we're all very proud of you for doing it. Big achievement. And, mm -hmm. and thank you for sharing that information with us. Yeah. Uh, so I guess just summarising what Bella's uh, told us, Alan, it is all about recovery nutrition. And um, I guess a, a new term that we've now learned is about recovery optimization. Mm. Absolutely. So who would have thought an engineering term would end up in, in sports nutrition science, but there you go. Um, so yeah, I guess it's, it's looking at bringing all of those different R's of recovery together. Uh, and as we said, you know, the work that Isabella and Ricardo have done, uh, we've gone from, from three R's to five and, you know, Ben Desbro mentioned a sixth in terms of relaxation. Um, so we've got obviously refuel, which is, um, you know, replacing the, the carbohydrate, the glycogen that you've lost during exercise. Uh, rehydration, replacing the fluid that was lost from sweating, um, repair, which is essentially uh, both repairing muscle damage, but also driving the the adaptations, you know, the reason that we get better as a result of training with protein. Mm -hmm. um, and then adding in those two new ones in terms of regulate, um, in terms of the um, 
the gastrointestinal tract and making sure that that's still intact and functioning well when exercise finishes so you can absorb all those nutrients properly because if you have you know, a gastrointestinal tract that's not absorbing nutrients, then you, you, know, you can put in the fluid and the carbs and the protein, but it's not going to get in there and, and do its job in terms of the refueling, the repairing and the, the rehydrating. Um, so we want to keep the, the gut intact during exercise to ensure that the recovery post-exercise is, uh, is, is optimised. Um, and then the final one, um, fifth R, I can't remember off the is top of my head. Response. Restore. Yeah, and restore. Yeah. Restore. Yeah, so the immune function. Um, so, yeah, looking at, at the function of the immune system, um, which uh, gets depressed during exercise uh, and trying to, um, you know, help us restore that as, as best we can. Uh, and as Isabella mentioned, it's, it's something that they kind of missed a bit in, in her PhD studies, but we know from other research that carbohydrate very early post-exercise uh, may be able to assist with this. And, and obviously, if someone's in a heavy block of training where there's a risk of maybe um, illness, um, then, then that's probably a, not a bad thing to be thinking about as well. Uh, and I guess... Um, the, the, the good thing with the, the two extra R's that have been added is that they don't really change what our recommendations are from a recovery point of view. I guess they're just two more reasons to get it right um, and maybe changing the timing a little bit, but um, it's not adding anything new in terms of nutrients or things that we need to, to do. It's just making sure, you know, we get our in, in exercise nutrition right from a recovery point of view as well as a performance point of view in the session and then looking at that carbs, protein, fluid during uh oh sorry during the recovery period yeah yeah um and, and i guess you know isabella talked a little bit about some numbers there uh, in terms of how much carbs how much protein how much fluid um but we maybe have a quick discussion steph in terms of you know what that translates to in terms of breakfast lunch dinner snacks that kind of thing mm. um and also the 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 need for how aggressively you you pursue each of those hours of recovery uh, will depend on you know how hard the session was, how hard the, the next session is and the timing of the next session. So you're refueling. If you've done a really easy session, you probably haven't, there's not much to refuel. Um, or if the next session is a long way away, you know, just normal eating and drinking will get you there anyway. Mm. Uh, likewise with rehydration, obviously the bigger the sweat loss from the first session um, and the shorter time frame to the next session that needs, you know, high quality effort the more important that rehydration is. But if it's a long time between sessions or the first session was pretty easy, then you know, you're, again, your normal eating and drinking is probably sufficient and you don't need to really think too much about it. Um, and then the repair side of things, again, if it, it was a pretty easy session, the first one, maybe not quite as um, as, as critical around the repair side of things. But I think probably, um, and you probably think the same way, Steph, I would think the, the repair, that protein side of things is the one that I would always have fairly consistently. Mm -hmm. And then I would, you know, scale up and down the rehydration and the refueling aspects depending on the, mm -hmm. the training schedule of the athlete and what the session was that they've just finished. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think, um, you know, when... Uh, Bella was talking about or when we were talking about the recovery nutrition and um, sort of saying those guidelines in terms of yeah with the carbohydrate um, refueling and doing that you know every hour over the next four hours um, that's kind of more in terms of as we we're talking about is more in terms of depending on how intense the the um, the session is and probably more applied to those multi-stage or self-sufficient um, actual competitions and events. It's not like, okay, I go and do a, um, 
a run in the morning and even if it's been like a um a uh, fartlekky type of session um I, I don't you know I'm not going to be going every hour for the next four hours with that real intense um uh, recovery nutrition so again it's just um thinking about what the needs are um and um and load of that event uh and in relation to those amounts that we were talking about, it got a bit, I guess, sometimes it might be a bit sciencey for some people. So um, we, we spoke about with protein being about that sort of, you know, 0.3.4 grams per kilo body mass. So if you just think of about a, you know, whether we're a 60 or 70 kilo athlete or more, um, that's coming out to be anywhere between potentially 20 to 30 grams of, of protein. And as Bella mentioned, that's really as easy as, I guess, like a palm size um, of if you're a meat eater, you know, some meat or chicken or, um, or fish. Um, if you're not, if you're vegetarian or you're, you're vegan, obviously you're getting that from um, your vegetarian sources. So things like tofu or tempeh or legumes and lentils or a combination of those. Um, but it doesn't have to be um, complicated. Uh, it could be, um, and then if we think about that carbohydrate, you know, if it's kind of that 1 to 1.2 grams per kilo body mass, again, that's anywhere from, let's say, 60 to 70 grams. Um, and that can be as easy as a cup of cooked, um, a bit over a cup of cooked rice or a cup of one or two cups of cooked pasta uh, or you make a big smoothie. Um, and you do that with milk, banana, um, yogurt, and then we've got the protein, the carbs, we've got the fluid in there. Um, so it can be quick and easy. Uh, it, it doesn't need to be anything crazy, um, but it's, it's just trying to think about the types of foods. So think about, okay, well, what's the protein sources for me? Um, and then what are some carbohydrate options? And then how can I co combine that? Mm. And eggs is another useful one. You know, you're talking about uh, emu eggs. Probably one emu egg would do the trick. <laughs> um, but in terms of chicken eggs, it's probably three chicken eggs would get you around that sort of 20, 25 gram mark of, of protein. Uh, and then in terms of dairy products, you know, milk, if you're just having milk on its own, probably, you know, 500 mils-ish mm. is probably about enough. Mm. Um, if it's something like yogurt, you know, uh, certainly here in Australia and I think a lot of places worldwide now, you can get the sort of the high-protein strained Greek yogurts and about mm. 180 to 200 grams of that will get you around that 20 grams of protein as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but as you said, you know, you can start to combine um things whether it's in a meal or something like a smoothie where you the smoothie's giving you the fluid and the carbs and the protein within the one package so it's very quick and convenient uh you know a lot of people talk about chocolate milk as being such such a re great recovery product and the reason is you get all those three things in the one product you know you get 50 or 60 grams of protein you get 20-ish grams of uh, sorry 20-ish grams of protein 50 or 60-ish grams of Cats. carbohydrate and then 600 mils of fluid so you sort of get all of those three aspects of recovery in the one package so it's really quick easy convenient for for most people mm. um you know for some people um you might want to go you know they might be thinking more about supplements and protein powders and things like that and i think that's something we'll probably talk about in a future episode mm. um but it can be you know really as simple as you know finishing exercise or, or planning your, your training to finish 
you know, pretty shortly before one of your main meals of the day. And the main meal of the day, if it's got, you know, those elements, you know, meat, fish, chicken, or sort of uh, plant-based alternatives, plus, you know, some sort of starchy thing, bread, potato, rice, pasta, whatever it is, uh, and you're drinking water or something with it, it's going to tick all of those boxes in terms of recovery without you really having to plan out, measure out, um, mm anything specific in that mm. in that sense but obviously you know that's not always possible depending on what time of the day you're training uh, and what's to come and as you said in your rant at the start you know particularly people training early in the morning and, and rushing straight off to work or school or whatever it is that's sometimes where the challenge can come in from a logistics point of view mm. yeah and like I think we both see people not always practicing that recovery nutrition well. And I know that's always a big thing in terms of when, if they ask us to do up a nutrition plan for them with the guide, and um, that's a big feedback point that, that we tend to get is, uh, I'm actually pulling up a lot better in my training session. I'm, I'm able to get through, you know, the next session. Um, and I always love hearing that because it just goes to show how important, you know, nutrition can be um yeah for for the for the training yeah yeah absolutely um and you know coming back to you know the episode episode 2a with dr sam impey what should i eat and drink before a long training session you know the recovery you know depending on the timing of the next session becomes part of that preparation for the next one mm. uh, and that's where as you said you know you'll really notice the difference if you've got two hard sessions in in quick succession, whether it's in a stage race scenario or just a, a big training block, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you if you skimp on things, particularly the refueling aspect uh, between those sessions, you'll you'll really notice it, particularly if it accumulates over a few days. Exactly right. Yep. Yep. Mm. Yeah. So that's um, awesome. A wealth of of info from Bella, and I think it will be really useful for our listeners, uh, hopefully, um, and. Um, I think following on from Isabella's session, we are going to have a guest athlete and our guest athlete is? Yeah, he's an adventure runner, Richard Bowles. So Richard's someone that, that I worked with many, many years ago now, uh, but he's done quite a lot of sort of, um, I guess you could say fairly extreme adventure type runs. Uh, so not not competitive running in the sense of, you know, marathons or um, ultra stage, you know, multi-stage ultra marathons for, for trophies and things like that. But he's done things like he was the first person to run Australia's Bicentennial National Trail, which is a, a over 5,000 kilometre run where he wrote, ran basically uh, the equivalent of a marathon a day for over five months back to back. Um, so obviously, you know, for something like that, recovery is going to be really important. He's then done some longer ones where you're running for, you know, 80, 90 kilometres a day for maybe only 10 days in a row, 15 days in a row. But then you've got a very limited amount of time to get that recovery nutrition in. Uh, and then he's done, uh, he did a, a simulated ultra uh, with either lots of nutrition or very little nutrition in the lab with us. So he's got a real point of comparison there. Uh, and then a, a really interesting project that he's done recently in, in India at the end of 2019, which I won't go into detail now. We'll talk about it in the episode next week. But uh, a, a great example of um, recovery nutrition really being suboptimal, I guess, uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. Um, but it's interesting talking to, to Richard as well about his, I guess, philosophical take on nutrition for recovery. Um, he's not you know, he's not trying to win Olympic medals or break world records or personal bests or anything like that. So 
you know, his take on nutrition is a little bit different, but I think it's it's a good message as well for a lot of people that are doing more recreational type activities, uh, you know, charity running events or cycling events and things like that. Uh, and I think, you know, you see Richard doing similar things, but on a probably more extreme scale than the average person. But um, just the fact that you don't need to necessarily overcomplicate it or make it too sciencey mm. um, for it to work out as well. Mm. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, and I think uh, also, you know, in terms of some of the events that he was doing, um, you know, obviously people don't um, have that the knowledge always or the energy to be able to put in the area of planning the nutrition. Um, so he, he did get to that point where he, in a way, must have appreciated, okay, for me to be able to get through this particular event, I do need to at least consider the impacts that nutrition will have for me. Um, and then that's when he got you on board. Um, and obviously, you you know, you did plan out what he was consuming for particular reasons. Um, so I think that's really important as well that, um, yeah, it, it does have a role to play, but yeah, depending on um, what that event is and what the goals are of the individual, yeah, you don't need to overcomplicate it, um, but um, it, it can play an important role. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Awesome. Well, we probably should let people um, chill without hearing us for a little bit and um, <laughs> we'll um, catch them on the next episode, which I really love listening to all of Rich, um, Rich's ad adventures. Um, and, uh, yeah, again, just any questions or anything, uh, please um, contact us on our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, all at The Long Munch. And you can listen to us at, uh, on your podcast, um, all the popular platforms. Yep. All right. Well, that's probably a wrap for us. So um, thanks, everyone, for listening, as always. And, uh, yeah, we'll tune in next week and hear from Richard. Awesome.